You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast. This month, guest host by Caitlin Cox. Hello, and welcome to the January edition of Heart Sounds. So far in 2019, there's been plenty of cardiology news to keep us busy at TCTMD. There's also a lot to look forward to in the new year. I'll admit, I felt pretty refreshed coming back to work after a long holiday break filled with family and friends. I got used to sleeping in while my kids watched cartoons in the morning, and I had time to knit a hat, go bowling, and visit my 91-year-old grandfather. Less than four weeks later, though, we're in the thick of things again. We've got a lot going on right now. I myself am at ISIT, reporting on the latest endovascular news from Hollywood, Florida. You can catch all my coverage online as the data roll out. Yael Maxwell is currently at the Society of Thoracic Surgeons meeting in San Diego. Soon, Todd Neal will head to Honolulu for the International Stroke Conference. But I'm getting ahead of myself. What has the TCTMD editorial team been up to in January? Well, quite a bit. And I'm proud to say much of the news we've covered has the potential to be practice changing. In one of January's top stories, Michael Reardon took on a tricky patient population, those with stable chest pain. Prompted by an opinion piece by Sanjay Call, published in JAMA Cardiology, his story looked at whether growing interest in CT angiography stems from solid evidence or if it's simply irrational exuberance. The UK-based National Institute for Health and Care Excellence broke new ground in 2016 when it recommended coronary CTA as a first-choice test for all patients with chest pain but without established CAD. Elsewhere in Europe and in the United States, CTA doesn't occupy such a lofty position in the guidelines for the management of these patients. But new U.S. guidelines are expected later this year, likely during the American Heart Association 2019 scientific sessions, and there's a lot of buzz about CTA. So, should coronary CTA get more support in the setting of stable ischemic chest pain? Not yet, says Call of Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. One trial that Call believes lacks robust data is Scott Heart, which released five-year results at the 2018 European Society of Cardiology Congress. At the time, impressions of the study couldn't have been more mixed, and physicians immediately took to social media to hash it out. Talking with David Newby, who led the Scott Hart trial, Mike naturally heard a different perspective. I'm going to play you two clips. First up, Call characterizes his qualms. I don't think that the, the quality or the quantity of evidence is sufficient enough to uh, uh, upgrade the recommendations to class one. Okay. Uh, but at the same time, I don't want my viewpoint to be viewed as that I am overly critical of CCTA and support uh, diagnostic uh, stress testing. Mm-hmm. All I'm saying is that I'm not convinced by the data that CCTA trumps uh, stress testing or standard of care. Uh, and so uh, these data don't support the primacy uh, of, of, uh, of CCTA over stress testing or standard of care. Next, Newby gives his take on why CTA is on solid ground. Number one, all the evidence always points to CT being superior to stress testing in terms of clinical outcomes. There's no trial that's ever shown the opposite. Um, and meta-analysis, observational data, and all the trials are consistent on that. And the second thing that I would say is that from first principles, it's obvious that a, a test that actually shows you whether you've got disease or not is going to be more powerful than a test that doesn't. And the final thing is that 
people think when you have a heart attack very often the narrowing in the artery isn't that bad and over half of people who have a heart attack have a, a very small narrowing that wouldn't give them symptoms mm. and it comes out of the blue most people who have a heart attack if you tell them ask them to go and join it beforehand the answer is usually no mm. and they've got a, a little plaque in their heart which bursts and causes their heart attack and those plaques will never be seen on a stress test but they are seen on a CT and that's what the trial, promise trial, Scott Heart trial, has shown is that um, knowing you've got heart disease, the pouring up your arteries predicts the people that have heart attacks. And stress imaging does do that. But when you have a normal one, as I say, it doesn't mean you've got no risk. And 50% of heart attacks, more than 50% of heart attacks, have people have a normal stress test. Okay. So it's, it's never going to happen. Whereas for CT, it's incredibly small the number of people that have a heart attack with normal coronary arteries by CT. A story by Todd also stands out as one of our most read this month. It sums up a study published in Jack Cardiovascular Interventions that looked at how clinicians in Ontario are managing patients who have stable ischemic heart disease but no symptoms. Turns out that treatment varies widely across centers. The takeaway? that there's a need for randomized data that can better guide decision-making in this population. Some experts are hoping that the ischemia trial, which is expected to report results late this year or in early 2020, will offer insights. Todd talked with lead author Andrew Charnecki of Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center in Toronto to find out what makes these patients challenging not only to treat, but also to research. There is, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty about how to treat these patients, and that's manifested uh, in the amount of variation that we see in practice. Uh, you know, as a health services researcher, you don't like variation because it, it suggests that there is, uh, there's uncertainty in what to do with these patients. Um, so I think that's a major takeaway point. And, and, um, and the corollary to that is that, you know, you can't really explain it with the traditional ways uh, that we've used to explain why variation exists. And, uh, and the last thing is that, you know, there, uh, there is a potential for uh, altering prognosis uh, within this population. Uh, but, you know, again, this really should be a hypothesis-generating finding that will fuel uh, further studies uh, and obviously uh, more answers from randomized data. For me, the most interesting thing I tackled was the day-long joint meeting of two FDA advisory committees on the gout drug Febuxostat. The agency is seeking expert advice on what new action, if any, to take following a signal of increased cardiovascular death among patients taking Febuxostat in the CARES post-marketing study. In November 2017, based on early results from CARES, the FDA issued a safety communication about Febuxostat. Now there's talk of sending a letter to healthcare providers adding a black box or other warnings to the drug's label, requiring a REMS, or even taking it off the market. Many people are worried, though, about making the drug harder to get for patients who really need it to treat debilitating gout. What's behind the CARES results is a mystery. Although CV mortality was increased with Febuxostat versus allopurinol, there was no rise in non-fatal CV events. Also, most MACE occurred not while patients were taking their medications, but in the first 30 days after they'd stopped. As of yet, there are no obvious mechanisms to explain these data. Some theories tossed about in the discussion on January 11th were that Febuxostat might affect platelet activation, plaque rupture, or heart rhythm. Making things even more difficult is the fact that in CARES, 
45% of patients lacked full follow-up, and 57% stopped taking their study medication. At the FDA meeting, CARES investigator William White from the University of Connecticut School of Medicine described the gout population as challenging to study. Much like in the precision trial of patients with arthritis, where 68.8% stopped taking the study drug, the CARES population is in pain, he said. I mean, I've been doing these kind of clinical trials for 35, 37 years, and all you have to do is have an argument with somebody and the patient's going to leave the study. And this particular patient population is a very difficult one. They have a lot of other problems. There's a lot of alcoholism. There's a lot of obesity. There's a lot of other cardiovascular disease. And they're ornery. They're unhappy. They're in pain all the time from their, from their disease. So the first thing they're going to do when they get a gout attack is say, this doctor's not doing something good for me. I'm leaving the study. So I think that that's part of, we didn't know this was going to happen. No one would have predicted that half the patients in the trial were going to discontinue study drug. But at least we could say one thing, and that it was equal in each treatment group. By the end of that long day, though, Fabuxistat emerged relatively unscathed. 19 out of 22 panel members agreed that there are at least some patients with gout for whom the risk-benefit profile is favorable for the treatment of hyperuricemia. Two voted against that idea, and one person abstained. I'll be watching to see how the FDA weighs this moving forward so that I can fill you in. Laura McEwen, who's been heading up our coverage of the Paclitaxel controversy as it has erupted, also got to be a fly on the wall this month, from afar, she listened in on a special session at the LINK meeting where participants tried to envision what comes next on the heels of a meta-analysis that identified a signal of late death with paclitaxel balloons and stents for the treatment of PAD. Since then, two clinical trial groups have announced a temporary pause on their paclitaxel-related research, and the FDA has sent out a Dear Doctor letter saying they're evaluating the concerns and will continue to track long-term outcomes. On the ground in Leipzig, researchers sifted through newly released patient-level data from the pivotal trials. This time, the numbers showed low and comparable mortality rates between patients treated with a paclitaxel-based device versus an uncoated balloon. Peter Schneider of the Hawaii Permanente Group in Honolulu presented data from the impact study groups that day. As he said during the session, if this paclitaxel thing is a runaway train, we need to know it right away. Laura spoke with him on the phone to hear his takeaway from the discussions. You asked, did I have a sense of uh, a picture emerging? I will say I was um, I was uh, gratified today to see that the data that was presented really suggested strongly that there is no safety signal. And if there is one, it's got to be a little bit smaller than was claimed by the summary level meta-analysis because... It's going to be quite difficult to find, I think, uh-huh. if there is anything to find. And, you know, I think we will find it with a larger pool of patient-level data if there is anything to find. And, and I also think that's clear that that's the next step. So even though the data we have would suggest that there is no safety signal, I think because it's so serious and because it's such a big deal and because everyone's really quite taken aback by the whole thing, I think we will the suspenders on this one to really prove to the best that's humanly possible whether there's a a safety concern or not. Yael Maxwell, meanwhile, addressed a favorite topic among our readers, TAVR. 
Around half of TOPR patients develop potentially dangerous conduction abnormalities, researchers reported in a recent paper. These complications are linked to increased risks of all-cause mortality and heart failure hospitalization. The results were published in JAK Cardiovascular Interventions. But as the editorial puts it, it's unclear whether these new onset abnormalities are innocent bystanders or serious adverse events. Yael sought outside comment from Joseph rodet Cabot of Quebec Heart and Lung Institute. Here's what he had to say. I think it's, uh, it's an adverse event. There is, uh, there is no doubt about that. The problem is that, um, for example, some of these left underlying blocks will tend to disappear uh, over time. Not, not the majority, not the majority, but some of them. And uh, there are other studies, and we have a study now ongoing uh, or that has been submitted, where it's not the data is less, I would say, um, strong in terms of uh, association with poor outcomes. Mm-hmm. I think that um, that there is a market of risk. There is no doubt about that. But I don't think that we can put this at the same level of, let's say, dying or having a disabling stroke. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. TCTMD also continues to bring you colorful stories that you least expect. Shelley kicked off the year with a feature article exploring a bold proposal from a veterinary cardiologist. Why not test experimental devices and beloved household pets? The idea, floated by Brian Skanson of Colorado State University, stems from the fact that dogs develop many of the same acquired structural heart diseases as humans, obviating the need for lab models that can't fully replicate the true disease state. Meanwhile, the dogs who develop things like severe chronic mitral regurgitation, for example, will die of these diseases, leaving behind their heartbroken owners who might have been willing to take their chances with an investigational device. Skanson's high-tech facility at CSU is one of very few in the world, with the imaging and other state-of-the-art technology to do these kinds of procedures. He believes closer collaboration between cardiologists and veterinarians could be fruitful, not only for industry and innovation, but also for his canine patients. There's the possibility of training physicians during pet procedures too, potentially offering a life-saving therapy to the dog while letting human cardiologists hone their techniques. To get a better idea of Skanson's vision for this kind of partnership, check out Shelley's feature, which we've nicknamed Rover's Regurgitation. In the meantime, here are a few snippets from Shelley's conversations with Skanson. To the naysayers that say, it's a dog, get over it, get another dog. They're certainly entitled to their opinion, but I still think a case can be made that there's a greater learning beyond simply, you know, somebody trying to save the life of their pet. We can test devices in naturally occurring disease. This doesn't have to be an induced model that is artificial, experimental, and really not representative of what the actual human disease is. To me, it completes a circle, right? Because you have for decades, centuries, animals have been used for research to try and develop human products. And so now we actually have the ability to bring that circle back around and say, this is, won't appeal to as many physicians, but it does appeal to me in that animals brought some of these devices to market. They work in humans. Why can't we bring them back to animals and treat animals with the same diseases?
that's all from me this month. I've got to get back to the hustle and bustle here at ICET. Lately, the news of the world, from the U.S. in particular, has been less than inspiring. But the hard work done in our field and connecting with the people who achieve it keep me motivated. Stay in touch, share what's important to you, and keep it up. At TCTMD, we too are hard at work, chronicling all things cardiology. Thanks very much, dear listeners, for tuning in each month. If you have ideas for this show or for TCTMD as a whole, you can find me on Twitter at TCTMD underscore Caitlin. Bye for now.